Do you want to talk about books? Yeah. Hello, and welcome to A Well-Read Life. This is a place to share stories about good books and the reading life. I'm your host, Beth Jamison. Join me as I meander through my reading journey and discover the books that make up a well-read life. Today I have my friend Sophie Burkhart with me to talk about our love of mysteries and detective fiction. So Sophie, why do we love this genre so much? I think we love this genre for many reasons. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) My personal favorite reason is I just love puzzles. I do too. And so I love working out, trying to, I'm terrible at figuring out murder mysteries. I never figured out by then. I'm always surprised, but I like trying to figure out. It's a game for sure. So this is interesting because I never figure them out or rarely figure them out when I'm reading it, but I can figure it out if I'm watching a detective series sometimes because I feel like the clues have to maybe be a little bit more obvious. So I don't know if it's if it's the same for you. That's true. I guess I'm more likely to figure it out. But I, I feel like maybe, too, in shows or movies, they just look more guilty. They do. Because you see everybody's facial reactions right. and you, you don't in a book. You have to suspect somebody. Also, I appreciate how evil doesn't win. So mm-hmm. there's always a strong sense of justice. And in the very best mysteries, I know that Mez, our friend Mez, has been talking about Father Brown. There's an offer of reconciliation to the perpetrator. Which is, I think, goes against, in a way, our desire for justice, but speaks beautifully about the redemption of God. I also love how things are always set right and there is order. I love that there's a little bit of a formula that you know what to expect Mm -hmm. so that you're not completely caught off guard and surprised. I do get very protective of the characters I like, and I'm afraid (laughs) they're going to (laughs) die. But other than that, I'm I'm good. Anything else that you especially love? Well, I, w- I was thinking about that, the notion of the order and the formula. I feel like I, I'll get on like detective fiction kicks. Yes. It's not something I read consistently. Yes. But when I'm feeling stressed or yes. confused, it's just, it's so something so reassuring about reading a book that you know everything is going to sort out. Exactly. I, when I struggle to fall asleep, I will pick up a mystery a lot of times because it actually comforts me and helps mm-hmm. me sleep mm-hmm. because of that strong sense of order. So I completely agree. And also the detectives. So there are some there are some mysteries. The mystery isn't even very good, but you love the detectives so much that you just can't help but compulsively read the book. So I'll I'll touch on that a little bit more, but I don't know if you have if you have experienced the same thing. I guess sometimes. Yeah. I think I'm still more drawn into the puzzle itself than okay. the particular detective. Well, there's there's a few, which I'll touch on. Sophie knows. <laughs> Sophie knows <laughs> about them. Okay, so moving on. Sophie took a detective fiction class in university, and I'm a little bit jealous that she got that she took it. I wish <laughs> I wish I had thought to take something like that when I was in school. But I wanted to ask her and pick her brain any takeaways she had from the class and what the different types of detective fiction are, and a little bit about the history of detective fiction. So I'm going to let Sophie take the mic on that one. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really short question. Um, 
Yeah, I that class was fascinating. Like mm-hmm. I was just telling Beth, my professor is more interested in philosophy than mm-hmm. literature, which is my thing anyways. So I, I enjoyed it, but we had to write a lot of papers. So I had to do a lot of digging. There aren't that many academic sources on detective fiction. There's like five. Why, Why do you think that is? <laughs> I have no idea. Maybe because it's such like a niche area. Okay. But we had to have a lot of academic sources for every single paper. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I've used every academic source that's ever really? been written. That's probably overstating it. Yeah. But it felt that way. Yeah. When I was searching. Oh, Sophie, there's your PhD. There <laughs> we go, detective <laughs> fiction. Um, it was really fascinating. But our main textbook that we used was this anthology of short stories by Donald Westlake. He put it all together and it's called Murderous Schemes. But what was nice about having this is he offered a bit of history about detective fiction. And there was like, there is a whole book on the history, which is is really interesting. Mm. But one of the things that he said that I thought was interesting when I was just rereading it was sort of where mystery was born out of. And so he says, this is a quote from him, the mystery had its beginnings in this rebellion, the romantic rebellion against the Enlightenment, and combines the Enlightenment's scientific rationalism with the romantic interest in madness and abnormality, which is very fascinating because Mm -hmm. if you know me, I do not like the Enlightenment. And so (laughs) the Enlightenment had really shifted the Mm -hmm. entire way that Western thought went. And so then again, romanticism is the biggest pushback that keeps kind of resurfacing time and time again against uh, against the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. But it's really interesting that detective fiction feels to me like the one genre that really unites them. You're right. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that in that way, but I, I can't think of any, I can't think of any other genre that does it. I think as well. I don't think so. Or as consistently. And I've never thought about yeah mysteries as being that way. But they they're <laughs> not given their due, in my opinion. I I think mysteries are are kind of looked down upon slightly. <laughs> right, they're not really treated academically. They aren't they're sort and of I- ignored. And I think as we will continue to discuss, there are a lot of nuggets in a good detective fiction and good mystery. So go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) but It's so fascinating. It really is. Um, So sort of moving on from that time period, you didn't, it didn't seem like there was like tons and tons of mysteries Mm -mm. until you hit the golden age of detective fiction, which is our personal favorite time. And the years, because I meant to look up that before. So it's 1920s. Yes, it's right after World War One. I. I did also did not write down the exact dates. I'm really bad about dates, but it is right after World War I. I think it's around 1920s to the 1950s mm-hmm. that you had the golden age of mysteries, which I'll double check. And I'm going to mention at the end, there's an interesting book that talks about that time period as well. But this is when you get a lot of the great mystery writers. And Ronald Knox, who was a priest, was a, he was also a detective fiction writer. But he had his 10 rules for detective fiction, for mysteries. And there were 10 rules that you weren't supposed to break. Agatha Christie liked to bend the rules quite a bit. And, you know, I think quite a few of them did. But those were kind of, they came together as, this is our um, manifesto. manifesto, Our (laughs) our mystery manifesto. It's an interesting thing. That is cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially in that time, it was very formulaic. Yes. And you had all these different, or several different authors sort of Mm -hmm. presenting their formulas who's wh auden had also his like this is what you do to write a mystery really mm-hmm. i did not know this yeah i was reading it the other day yeah. it was very interesting so there's a bunch of different ways but this was yeah. really the time where i was focused on mm-hmm. order focused on justice mm-hmm. which you have a lot so that's a big big part of world war one is you had everybody was like mm-hmm. progress 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 post enlightenment mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden not progress like you right. saw that that progress led to 
the worst war in the history of humanity and just mm-hmm. mass destruction. And so devastation. Oh, just across terrible. the board. Terrible. Yeah. And so all everybody's as a culture and society is reeling from this. Mm-hmm. And you see this emergence of this strong mm-hmm. detective fiction that there is order. There is cosmos out of chaos. There mm-hmm. is truth. Which is just fascinating. And I, I think that's why I love detective fiction because it's also so interwoven with where culture is at. You can tell right. by the mysteries that people write. You were so right. <laughs> so post-Golden Age, yes, uh, things have looked different. And now, Golden Age was really primarily in Britain. Whereas right. in America, I think for a long time, even during around that time, America's always had a darker... Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm rolling my eyes because Raymond Chandler wrote, I meant to send this to you, but he wrote an essay, I think, about what makes up good detective fiction. And I don't know if you've ever read any of his books. Mm-hmm. Very dark. And they're very convoluted. And they don't make a lot of sense. And I completely disagree with him. But he wanted it to be more procedural and closer to the real, the police police work. And he just made it very, very gritty and dark and seedy. And he criticized some of my favorite mystery writers, and I have a little bit of a vendetta against him. So. Rightly so. <laughs> Rightly so. Yeah, because in general, the American approach has always been very gritty. They mm-hmm. have more of the lone wolf detective Yes, that I, I thought was interesting. Like a lot of times mm-hmm. in the British stories, they'll work alongside the police, whereas in America, we're like, down with the establishment. <laughs> exactly. And it, so it's, it's interesting, and sometimes they have, not only do they work with the police, there's that partnership with them, but they also have a partner that they mm. work with a mm-hmm. lot of times. They don't always solve these on their own, or there's someone bearing witness to what they're doing. So I think that that speaks a lot about how we're we're supposed to be in community with one another. Right, right. Yeah, I just, British do it better. <laughs> they do. <laughs> <I'm> surprised. <laughs> and then, so you sort of have that, and I feel like in many ways that kind of became this darker, grittier American version became a more dominant. And now we have sort of a mix, I feel like, of two mm-hmm. different things. You have the ones that are very focused on the human psyche. And it's mm-hmm. not really doesn't care that much about justice. You really get into what makes people tick, but in a, the worst ways possible. And not like, like Dostoevsky goes into that with crime and punishment, but he has a purpose. Whereas this, I feel like it's a celebration of all that is dark. And it's oh, how can we push the boundaries and what can we see that's even more dark mm-hmm. and let's bring it into light even in, even to go further down and sink into more depraved behavior. And it's it's unsettling. Mm-hmm. And they're more focused. They're more thrillers. Mm-hmm. So they're more page turners in that sense of I, I think they're more emotionally driven narratives instead mm-hmm. of cerebrally driven narratives. Mm-hmm. And just this is an interesting thought. I feel like nowadays they're very much in cities that you read about it versus yes. the classic golden age was like, it is in a British country house. It's yes. always in the country. <laughs> yes. Or like in some of the other ones, it's like a town, a little town. It might right, not happen little. in a country house, but it might be a town where you have all the areas of life that everyone's partaking in. I think you find this a lot in Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. So everyone has their different roles in the town and things come to surface. And it, it's just a very interesting like you said, it, it does have a, a different setting completely. It's fascinating. Yeah. And then a lot of people now are obsessed with true crime and yes. serial killers, which is kind of the other version, but on steroids, because right. this is real, what people mm-hmm. have really done. And for some reason, girls especially. Uh, which is so interesting. I, if I listened to those, I would live in constant terror that a serial killer was going to find me. 
So when I was working as a seamstress, I got on a little bit of a true crime binge mm-hmm. through podcast, which is never good for me because of my overactive imagination. So I have to be very, very careful. But it's strange how much it pulls you in because of how it appeals to our our human nature of to hear the salacious details. Mm-hmm. I don't know why we would be drawn to that. I did. I had to cut it off because just the way that I would feel after I would listen to those things, I would go on down a rabbit hole and I would start looking up one of one of the the crimes and then it would take me to another one. And it was just it's so sickening. The things that have been perpetrated by serial killers that I just had to cut it off and say, I can't I can't go. I can't celebrate even by listening to it. I can't celebrate that kind of act because. When there's justice, that's the the main focus. That's wonderful. But when we're we're focusing on the gritty details and the just the horror of it, I I had to just say no, thank you. Yeah, it's just it's disturbing. <laughs> and I think it should be. I think we should be disturbed by it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that's most of what I see now. I'm curious. Mm-hmm. I am not the person. I don't read many things that are published right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd be curious because as a society, mm-hmm. especially here in America, our idea and conception of justice has switched. Yes, golden age is focused on justice as justice done towards individual acts. Right. But now we see justice as something that is systemic, mm-hmm. and it's applied to entire uh, groups or to entire systems. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know what kind of what kind of detective fiction could you write? Because people are no longer just solely responsible for their own actions. They are either responsible for the actions of whatever group they belong to, or mm-hmm. um, their actions are the result of something another group has done to them. Mm-hmm. It's just very interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know. Could you write detective fiction now if you were to follow that? So that's my my dream would be to write <laughs> write detective fiction because I love it so much. But I don't know. That is a good question. There's some modern detective fiction that I do read. And it's, again, for the character, but the Flavia Deleuze series by mm-hmm. Alan Bradley. It's a newer one, but it's an 11-year-old character. And I'll talk about it more later, but it's very interesting. And I don't, I feel like that follows much more of the golden age of mystery than mm-hmm. other books I've read. But I've read some of the thrillers and they are not for me. <laughs> and I don't like the message behind them. There was one in particular, I won't name it because I don't I don't want to put someone down. But at the very end, the person was caught, the killer was caught, or so they thought. But really, there was another person that was in league with them and they n- were never caught. Mm. And they were just free to do what they had done. It, that bothers me. It unsettles me. I think the view has completely changed. So it is an interesting, an interesting question and an, an interesting about amount of research. But I don't know that I don't know that I want to take the time to read them. To read them. Yeah. I just wonder if yeah. I don't try to over politicize things, but in a philosophical sense. Yeah. I wonder if writing detective fiction is inherently a political act more mm. than writing other genres. That's a very interesting I'm just observation. Curious because justice yeah. is very much associated with it is a very political topic mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. who enforces justice? Mm-hmm. Government. And so I just wonder. That is very interesting. I don't know. I just thought that. Okay, Sophie, again, this is for your PhD. <laughs> um, but also, what are the different types? Of, so we're talking about detective fiction, but what are the different types of detective fiction? Sophie has her book 
with her and she's going to kind of break down some of the different subgenres. Mm-hmm. So these would be subgenres of the more classical detective fiction. So the first one you have is the locked room, mm-hmm. which is what it sounds like. The person dies in a locked room. There's no way in or out. And you have to figure out how on earth could this possibly have happened. And old Donald Westlake, he says that locked room mysteries are very appealing because something it's, it's so madly irrational and yet mm-hmm. it's shown to be logical and that's mm-hmm. very reassuring mm-hmm. uh, to see that worked out so that's just interesting about locked rooms and then only one among you is sort of a mirror image so oh. that's where like somebody everybody's in a manor house and you know that somebody in the room is the murderer which i, I feel like is one of the most classic mm-hmm. examples and again he he says that's reassuring in the same way that the locked room one is because you have all of these false leads, but one by one, they are mm-hmm. eliminated and the truth is revealed mm-hmm. and justice is accomplished, which is just cool. Then there's also the caper, which the caper might be my favorite. Really? I love caper. So there's like the caper does not there's no murder usually in a caper. Mm-hmm. It's focused around theft because it is the showing the ingeniousness of the thief and working around um, and stealing whatever the thief is stealing. I love these stories. I love these movies, like The Italian Job. You know, <laughs> capers yeah. just, they get me really excited. It's like Ocean's Eleven. All yes. those movies would be I capers. love the Ocean's Eleven um, movies, yeah. I think, and I think I enjoy them because it's a less serious topic. Mm-hmm. It's also focused, it really appeals to our notion of the underdog. Because yeah. usually they're not stealing from somebody nice. It's yeah. sort of like, I'm going to show you right. this person is proud, arrogant, whatever. And my argument, my final paper for my class, <laughs> I argued that capers are our modern day Robin Hood stories. Oh, uh, yes. And that that's why we love them. Yeah. That's why they appeal to us. So what are your, some of your favorite capers? What are some of my favorite capers? Well, now that you ask me, I don't. <laughs> uh, I, all of them. I, I haven't read as many books that are capers. I know, that's very few. Usually short stories. Right. Um, um, the Blue movies. Cross, the one that I just read by G.K. Chesterton. Yes. There, that's a bit of a caper. That is a bit of a caper. Mm-hmm. It's a good one. I like the ones that are in this anthology. I don't remember what they're called, but I enjoyed, oh, I'll have I to, enjoyed all of them. I will look them up. I'll add them in the show notes. I just think they're so funny. <laughs> but it's it. usually like their ingenious puzzlement. I know, and that's um, so... That's just what's exciting. Yeah. That's so it's seductive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then you have the armchair detective, which is basically the detective doesn't go anywhere or do anything. They're sitting in one place and they get all of the clues and they work it out. And one of your favorite mysteries is a perfect example of armchair detective. You know which one I'm thinking of? No, I don't know which one you're The daughter of time. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, gosh. Sophie, I can't believe that. <laughs> I blinked on that one. It is so true. That mm-hmm. is an absolute perfect. Mm-hmm. I personally love it. pretty good it's a good one yeah these more than any of the other ones are very cerebral obviously there's zero action exactly (laughs) happening you're just working out the puzzle um i love those then you have um come into my parlor these are the creepy ones so when sophie was describing this to me before we recorded it was very chilling yes but also the way that she talks about it which i'll i'll stop talking (laughs) and let her do it is very interesting these are not my favorite jury they disturb me it's really revealing concealed mm-hmm. human evil, but not in praise of the evil. It's more of an example. Uh, it's sort of described as a spider setting a trap mm-hmm. for the fly. And you, the reader, are in the fly's perspective. So you come across whoever this might be that's spinning their web, and it looks very appealing. 
you're very naive. You're as naive as that person. You're like, oh, this is great. And then it just turns into a horror and a nightmare. And in, in my mind, when I read them, it feels very much like the forbidden woman or the strange woman from Proverbs. Mm -hmm. She's very appealing. Um, she has this table laid out, blah, blah, blah. But the end of her road is death, straight up. And quite literally, Play, yes. the, the comments in my parlor inevitably ends in the death of the person who walked into yes. the parlor. Um, they're very chilling. I do remember those reading from this anthology. So what are the what are those? I mean, I don't remember the titles, okay. but there was one that was literally came into a woman's parlor, and uh, the way that she killed people was pretty <laughs> pretty horrific. And oh. so they're more disturbing, but yeah. they serve as I think very good warnings because obviously there's a lot of time in Proverbs that's devoted to talking about the strange woman, and this happens. It's not always a woman, obviously, but right. This happens. Temptation mm -hmm. is something that seems very pleasing, but ultimately mm -hmm. it, it leads to death. And so, mm. oh, so that's great. Detective fiction has so that is so fascinating. So much. Then there's I confess, which is basically those are one of my least favorite. Yeah, it's kind of the detective is tricking the murderer or whomever into confessing. He Westlake sort of talked about it as you cannot possibly conceal the truth. That's sort of the reaffirming mm -hmm. thing of this: the truth will out always mm. um so that was interesting then there's uh hoist on their own petards is that how you pronounce that word i'm gonna say it's yes <laughs> anyways so these stories are ironic reversals so mm. you so you sort of follow this criminal they have the perfect crime but there's one flaw and so that brings basically it's again proverbs illusion it's mm -hmm. like when the violent they set a trap but they mm. end up setting a trap for themselves and so you sort of he was saying that there's a twofold thing of why we might enjoy it. One of we get to see the perfect crime. So there's some part of us that wants the perfect crime, but also we're satisfied that it fails mm -hmm. um, and that the wicked don't succeed. They bring it on their own destruction upon themselves. And then the last one is called Over the Edge. And that one examines what it is that drives pretty average people to go too far to go over the normal edge and commit murder or whatever it is so also an interesting more psychological one so interesting i know that there's an alfred hitchcock movie i believe that's called i confess have you ever mm, I've never seen I, hitchcock. I believe oh, so <laughs> okay. i know we're having it's a movie night we're having a movie night but I, I believe the name of it is i confess but it is a murderer confesses to a priest oh. in confessional all i can remember is the priest can't tell so i can't remember what what goes Along with that, but I just remember that being such a conundrum. When I was reading the back of, of the, the DVD before we checked it out, I was like, oh, this sounds like it's going to be really good. I think it was not one of Hitchcock's best, but it was an interesting premise. So with all of that said, what is it about mysteries, do you think, that make them so compelling and such compulsive reads? So we've pretty much touched on a lot of the things in, in just what we've been talking about, but I do think... Definitely that sense of order. Just there's something in us that wants to figure out this puzzle, like like you were talking about the perfect crime. So I don't know if there's any other thoughts that you have along those lines. I mean, I was compelling. I think the fact that it sort of combines the Enlightenment and the mm -hmm. romanticism and romanticism, because, you know, I think romanticism isn't the perfect response to the Enlightenment. I think it mm -hmm. goes too far to yeah. the other extreme. So detective fiction sort of encapsulates the best parts of both and mm -hmm. brings them together. And I think that's what makes it compelling because we are emotional and cerebral creatures. Yes. And so it appeals to both parts of that. Right. 
I agree completely, Sophie. And they are so, so compulsive. I know if you if you ever go to a library book sale, <laughs> Sophie's laughing because we went to one recently. The mysteries are some of the books that go the fastest usually. And they're one of the biggest sections, at least the library book sales that I frequent. Beth also battles people out in the mystery section. In my mind. <laughs> <laughs> there are there are rules. In my mind, the people should follow when they're at the library book sale looking at the mysteries. And we have a few people that don't follow those rules. <laughs> they linger instead of... Maybe instead that's of, what'll push Beth over the edge one day. <laughs> the library book sale in the mystery section. That would be funny. In detective fiction, the detectives are fascinated by human nature. So we've talked about human nature a little bit. We've touched on it. Or at least they have a deep understanding of it. For example, in the first Father Brown short story, The Blue Cross, which I'm mentioned to Sophie earlier. Father Brown says to the criminal, has it never struck you that a man who does next to nothing but hear men's real sins is not likely to be wholly unaware of human evil? So for me, that was just interesting when I read that of his understanding, his deep, deep understanding of the deprived human nature when you go to the absolute worst and just engage in your basest evil. So along with that, what light do you think mysteries shed on human nature? Sophie, we can kind of parse that out. And any thoughts that you have about kind of the, what I'm terming the theology of mysteries? Anything you have to add? As far as human nature, I, I was thinking about this because I think that they do a good job encapsulating human nature. And what I mean by that, I so I took a philosophy in film class. Okay. And the, my first paper I wrote, I wrote about Wonder Woman, the new Wonder Woman, not like Wonder Woman 2, but the newer Wonder Woman movie. And talked about how it walks through it's a thought experiment in different kinds of, of human nature because you mm -hmm. wonder woman starts off thinking humans are perfectly good then she hits a crisis moment and she's like humans are just the worst and then at the end sort of where the film settles is that humans are a mixture of good and evil and they kind of have to choose and it's love that's the most powerful mm -hmm. thing and so i think detective fiction comes in at that end viewpoint because you have both the murderer and the detective which when you're reading it they're kind of both sides of you as a person mm -hmm. it is your depraved fall in nature but then also the detective part i think is very much shows what it means to be an image bearer mm -hmm. and this whole notion of this caring for justice this caring for order and we as humans were created to like steward and rule and bring things into order around mm -hmm. us and to bring new life and this sort of thing so i think that the detective side really really speaks to that mm -hmm. fundamental part of what it means to be human while you still have the murder also speaking to your other side of I'm also fallen and I currently in my current state I have depraved thoughts and I do evil things and so I think it, it just comments on all of human right. nature. Right. <laughs> we're in need of redemption and we're in need of mm -hmm. grace. And it going back to the Father Brown quote, it's interesting to me that here is someone who is thought of by the criminal as an innocent or someone that we would even mm -hmm. mistakenly think as we're reading it, oh he's so naive. But we forget he has had people tell them their gravest sins. And he he can still have this view of life, of seeing the, the goodness of creation, the goodness of God at work in the world, but also see the need for man's redemption. So I, I don't know, I've been pondering that that quote. That's really st stuck with me just because I, I thought of Father Brown as this little innocent, but to realize that he is touching probably daily the evil side of, of mankind. And it's wonderful how he is always seeking the reconciliation for the person who has who has done the crime. So I think that's just a, a beautiful a picture of grace and redemption through 
detective fiction. <laughs> Absolutely. There, there's so much. I The thought of theology and detective <laughs> fiction I thought was fascinating. How it touches on human nature and then also this notion of like of cosmos out of chaos, mm-hmm. which is also in general a very sort of ancient thought. The Greeks sort of just talked about the world as being cosmos out of chaos. That's sort of their origin mm-hmm. story for the world as well. And, and so just seeing that notion played out of the story of the world is God bringing cosmos out of chaos. And you see that in detective fiction. And then also good detective fiction. Right. Again, the, the focus is truth. And you're mm-hmm. always, the darkness is brought to light. It's exposed for what mm-hmm. it is. And there's this, this single-minded focus on it is truth that matters. It is not the feelings of the murderer. It's not why the murderer did this it doesn't matter why it was wrong (laughs) Mm -hmm. and you must discover the truth you must make sure it is always a primary goal of the detectives to make sure that an innocent person does not die for something they didn't commit i I feel like that's kind of that is the plot of a quite a few detective Mm -hmm. novels is saving the innocent person from the gallows or or whatever it may be Yeah, and very much so. It's a big part of the Harriet Vane and Lord Peter Whimsey story. (laughs) That's who I was thinking of. (laughs) (laughs) I like what you said about trying to save the innocent and a person's life being of importance and value. So there's a whole thought process I have behind this that I'm I'm still formulating, but I wanted to talk to Sophie about it and kind of parse it out. But I was rereading the first Flavia de Luce novel. And if you have not read them, they are so delightful. I will talk about them more, but I just love the Flavia de Luce books. Even if they're not perfect, I just, I love her character. Oh, she's so funny. But I was reading The Sweetness at the Bottom of the Pie by Alan Bradley. And I came across this line at the end of the chapter. So I want to read it because this has got me on this whole like thinking about detective fiction in a different way. But she's just seen someone die and she's an 11-year-old girl. So this is what she says after seeing this. I wish I could say my heart was stricken, but it wasn't. I wish I could say my instinct was to run away, but that would not be true. Instead, I watched in awe, savoring every detail, the fluttering fingers, the almost imperceptible bronze metallic cloudiness that appeared on the skin, as if before my very eyes, it were being breathed upon by death. So my, I know, I know. And this is, these are more humorous books. Yeah, so... That was, this started my, like I said, my thought process that in many mysteries, the detectives are fascinated by death and murder. I think that's even in Lord Peter Whimsey, Sophie, that he has this like fascination a little bit. I I mean, I have to go back. It's been a while since I've read all of them. But my question is that I'm trying to, to solve is why do we think this is the case? It's really made me start to question why we can read about death with such distance and the act of murder with such coldness and calculation. And going on, especially as Christians who value the sanctity of life so much. So that's kind of my question is like, why does this fascinate us? And my other thought is, is it because it is a reminder that death is around us, a sort of memento mori, remember we will die? Or is it because of our love or desire for justice and that innate desire in us to see justice happen? So those are just my thoughts from Flavia Deleuze. (laughs) the end chapter of Flavia de Luce when I started to question my my propensity for loving detective fiction so much because of the death <laughs> and murder in it. I was thinking about this question um, because I think when I read detective fiction, 
I, I'm sort of what you were saying. I'm so completely separate from it. Mm-hmm. And at least for me, I don't feel like it reminds me of that death is inevitable. Okay. I, I would imagine that part of it could be the older you get, the more that could play a role. Mm-hmm. But I feel like at least for both of us, it, that natural death is so far in the future. It that seems it's, far off. It yeah. seems far off um, and something that you wouldn't really consider. And two, murder mysteries, nobody dies normally. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> it's unlikely. It's very that- rare. Yeah, it's unlikely that we would know anybody ever yeah. in our lives who would know anybody that died in this manner. So, so I do think that's an interesting thought, and I don't, I, I don't know if it's because it, if it's something, if there's something comforting about it because it turns death into something cerebral. It turns mm-hmm. death into a puzzle, so it makes death really not scary. That is very true. I, yeah, I don't know if, if that's part of it. And in a way, and this is going to sound so weird when I say this. It, it shows the death wasn't in vain in the sense that there is justice mm-hmm. brought about and that the perpetrator is has to pay for their crime, usually. Right. So that, again, that sounds kind of, <laughs> that sounds counterintuitive, but it's not completely in vain. Right. And it gives more closure than, say, mm-hmm. if you if you read a story about two teenagers who both have cancer and they fall in love and then they die. Right. That, that feels pointless. Yeah, it sounds, it seems very... It's just devastating. It is. Like, a death from any sort of illness leaves us reeling with how to cope with it. Mm-hmm. Why did this person die? There are answers. Mm-hmm. There aren't complete answers, but there's some yes. notion of an answer. But right. here, you're like, they died because this person wanted to kill them for this reason. And now I have mm-hmm. closure reading mm-hmm. it. And it's all tied up with a nice bow on it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I think maybe that's comforting. I'm still going to I'm still gonna have to think over my... <laughs> <laughs> my. It's not so much the fascination with death. It's I think it was my ability to step back when I have such a, a deep sense of the sanctity of life and the dignity of someone's life, of how, how I can step back, distance myself from it, and, and watch this whole puzzle take place. But again, you don't really get to know the victim, and I don't know that the victim is as important part of, unfortunately, of the detective novel as it could be. Right. And I think, in a way, these novels do affirm the dignity mm-hmm. of life. That's true. Uh, because... Again, like the the perpetrator is caught and mm-hmm. innocent people's lives are saved. Mm-hmm. And I think it I think it encourages to encourages us to look for justice that is supersedes individuals. Mm-hmm. So any really any book where people take justice into their own hands in detective fiction, that the person who does that is the one who's being critiqued. Mm-hmm. And so I think in general detective fiction is like it, it at least points us to the higher of the collective government. But mm-hmm. I think the more that you think about it, it leads you to be like, there must be some sort of higher justice above all mm-hmm. of this government. And so, I don't know, I think that can also be an outplaying of thinking through detective fiction. Yes, and also it's very rarely that the person who is killed, you're like, oh yeah, that needed to happen. It's, it is it is an innocent, usually. And it's... Uh, sometimes uh, they're jerks. But sometimes which, they are. Which is all the more reaffirming of the sanctity of life. Yes, it because is. Because they did not deserve to be murdered. Very true. They were jerks. Yes, which is, is so interesting that that happens in, I don't want to get too much away, but in the last Lord Peter Wimsey book. Yeah, well, even think uh-huh. of like uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, yeah. I don't think it gives it away that he, yeah. you're not really sad. Yeah. You're not sad that he's No, you're dead. not. Not at all. <laughs> kind of <You're> happy. <laughs> He was an awful person, but still, it was the way that justice was was taken was not the correct way. Right. And along that thought, Sophie and I have big <laughs> thoughts on this because there's a book we want to discuss that goes along with 
with our whole the whole theme of justice. And it is Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None, which when I heard that Sophie had read it too, I was so excited because I had waited years to be able to discuss this book with anybody. But it has a very interesting portrayal of justice in the book. So Sophie, I'm going to let you just, if you don't mind summarizing it, mm-hmm. and then we can have our fix of finally getting to discuss this novel. <laughs> oh, perfect. And Then There Were None is probably one of my favorite novels. So what happens is all these people who have done something wrong in their life. Some, oh, somebody, not all of them was intentional murder. Right. Some things it was just sort of accidental, but right. somebody else has died because of them. And so they're just not the best people, but they all get this invitation to go out to this house. I think it was on an island. Oh, it's, yeah, it's an island. It's an island. It's um, very isolated. All the worst things happen on islands. Don't yeah. go to them. So <laughs> all these people, they go to this island and then one by one, they start dying. And they die according to the poem, which is the poem called And Then There Were None? I think so. And it's like the, there's alternate versions of it. But one right. of them is like soldier boys and the other one is, I don't know, just children? I, don't I, I can't remember. I don't know. But it describes how each one dies. And that is how each person dies throughout the course of the novel. And you're reading it. And it makes it worse, I think, because you know it's coming. You just don't know who, who's going to who, die next. Who is next? So there were, are there 12 people? Ten. ten. I think okay. it's ten. And then it works Ten down. little soldiers, maybe. That feels right. Okay. She brought the book. <laughs> I know. And the poem is in each of their rooms, isn't it? I is think the correct? poem is there somewhere. It is I, in the house. It's somewhere in, like, in each of their rooms. And then there are, is it chess pieces that are on a table? Yes. And after a person dies, a chess piece is smashed. And sometimes they discover it before they find the dead person. Right. So it is chilling. And I listened to it while I was working as a seamstress narrated by Dan Stevens, who does a fantastic job. But I kept looking over my shoulder because I thought I was going to be killed next. (laughs) It's just just so, like I said, so, so chilling. But the atmosphere, it is not one I like, but I feel like she has created one of the most perfect atmosphere for this specific type of book Mm -hmm. because it is isolated. You're on this island. These people have nowhere to go. They don't know who to trust. They don't know each other in real life, like outside of this island. They don't know each other. They don't really know who has invited them there. Right. Or anyone's past history, but they've all either inadvertently or purposefully committed the death of someone else. Mm -hmm. So the way I would describe it, and this may not be the best way to get people to read it, (laughs) but it is like the characters are in a living hell. Like once the murders start happening, it is a living hell. And it is eerie, like I said, and chilling to watch one by one these people die in rather gruesome ways. Rather gruesome. And you don't know, you just really don't know who the person is. You don't see it coming. You don't see it coming. That's the crazy thing. And you're trying to figure out who the person is because you're trying to think, well, who's going to be next? Mm -hmm. And also, how is everyone going to be killed Mm -hmm. if there is still one person? So we can't give anything away. but. The view of justice, Sophie, we've talked about this a little bit. (laughs) To me, it's just a perverse view of justice. It Mm -hmm. is what happens when you take justice into your own hands and it does not end well and it is not the best way. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that Agatha Christie writes it is just a perfect critique of taking justice into your Mm -hmm. own hands because these people have all done something wrong, but you don't dislike them. Mm -mm. I think because their deaths are so drastically horrible you feel so much sympathy you do. for them. And you're cheering for them. Like, you want them to survive. Right. You don't want them to die. 
And so you become more and more horrified. And by at like the very end, you're so disgusted mm-hmm. with the person who's behind all of this because they were so arrogant that they thought they mm-hmm. could take justice into their own hands. And she even says that like this person did it this way because they have been bloodthirsty all their lives and they've wanted to commit murder, but they thought this was the way to do it because these mm-hmm. people deserve death, which was fascinating. And it made me mm-hmm. think of Dorothy Sayers talks about in Letters to a Diminished Church mm-hmm. and one of the essays in there, she's just describing different things and she talks about, I think she was like using it as an example, but she says how we're all kind of horrified when there are people who rightly argue against abusing animals. Right. None of us think that's wrong, but she says we're all horrified when those people take one step too far and say, I would kill someone who abused an animal. And it's like, they they have this rage that is just unmatched. It's it's too far. It's too extreme. And they're sort of using this outlet to let this horrible, like, evil part of themselves mm-hmm. come out that feels more justified. But it's not. It is not. And Christy does just a great job critiquing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of while we were thinking through it, I, I was thinking how much of our conversation in the current world is set up through things like social media where you can just sort of crucify people mm-hmm. very easily from a distance. It's set up for us. I feel like we're all constantly this person who takes justice into our own hands, has some sort of built up rage and just mm-hmm. takes it out to an unrealistic, completely unjust degree on somebody who may have done something wrong, mm-hmm. but they don't, it is not just to give them the extent Mm-mm. that you are giving them and there's no higher justice ruling over all. You're, we were just <laughs> in church last week, we were just talking about James and mm. sort of when you judge, not that you can't make any sort of judgment on anything. Like there's discernment, absolutely. Right. But you become a judge of the law instead right. of a doer of the law. And mm-hmm. who are you to say you're a judge of the law? And I feel like this is also that sort of playing out of you suddenly make yourself, you turn yourself into a judge from mm-hmm. this other person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the moment you become a judge, then you're just mm-hmm. as guilty as they are. And you're kind of usurping the authority of God. Yeah, go oh, for sure. You're taking on that power yourself. I am able to correct all these wrongs exactly. in my own power. And we can, we now, every single individual person has the power to destroy someone else's life through mm-hmm. like things like social media. Like the amount of power that we all have is just, it's insane. scary. And it is scary. Uh, <laughs> I wonder what sort of things Agatha Christie would write if she were alive now. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> it would be so that would be so fun. And I don't think I, I've kind of dismissed Agatha Christie in the past of just making her more of just a light read and not a lot of depth to her writings. And she may not be the perfect writer, but and then there were none. That is a deep. It is. There is a lot to it. And I think she deserves a little bit more credit than she gets just for just for that one alone. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it is, again, that's such an interesting critique on justice. And it's eerie, like I've said so many times before, but it is definitely worth reading to have our eyes opened to critique ourselves a little bit about mm-hmm. how far we're willing to go for justice. And there is a, a right way to do justice, and there is definitely a wrong way to do justice. And this shows the most horrific and wrong way. But on that note, can you think of one of the mysteries that does justice particularly well? Ooh. I know. I'm, I'm kind of stumped, too. That, wow. I know. There, I feel like... There are so many. There are a lot. There are a lot that, that do it well. I, I feel like anyone's where the police are so involved... Mm-hmm. Uh, justice is just done better because you you hand mm-hmm. them over 
to the police. And I'm trying to think if there are ones where the detective has a personal reason and they they still still have to do that. I know there's some. I know there's it. examples. I know that in Clouds of Witness, Lord Peter Whimsy suspects his brother. Is he suspected? His brother is suspected, but Whimsy knows it's not him. Okay, so, I- so scratch what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm stumped. I'm trying to think of an especially good. If you know of a mystery that has an especially good way of portraying justice, please let us know because we want to read that one. Yes. <laughs> but do you have anything else to say about And Then There Were None, Sophie? I don't think so. I mean, it just dives into the whole question of what, if you really yeah. want to take a philosophical, what right. is justice? Which everybody since Plato has been asking that question. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to get answers for that one. So moving on, what are some of our favorite mysteries? And why do we love them? Maybe we should answer first what our least favorite the mysteries are mm-hmm. and then go into our favorites. Okay. Okay. I don't like thrillers as much. I do like Mary Stewart, but that's light reading and that's like suspense more than thrillers. So certain types of thrillers I do like, maybe the older ones, but I don't like, I don't like the gory thrillers now or, or the ones where the unreliable narrator I don't. I don't like, I don't like, I want to be able to trust the person, the person's voice that I'm reading from. What are some of your least favorites? I abhor steampunk detective. It's like a whole thing. We had to read one for my class. You'll have to tell me later the names of these. Are they? Oh, the one that I had to read? Go for it. It was, there's also a, there's a Netflix show version of it, but I cannot remember what it's called right now. I don't know if it's steampunk to stay away from it. So is it young adult or is it? No, it's adult. It's not young adult. Oh. It, it's just like, it got spicy in the first chapter. Oh, dear. That's something that's <laughs> like, I think that, that's some of the, some of what you find in some of the newer, newer books is that they're more gratuitous in general. Just violence and sex. And I just, and I feel like the older ones, I mean, they have things in there. Right. But you don't have to go into a ton of detail. We don't need to read that. I feel like that's kind of a cheap trick by the author to draw readership. Yeah. And it also, what I really date about it is the detective, it's like this effort of trying to make things more realistic. Right. They want to make the detective more human. But in effect, they just make the detective as bad as them. Right. That's really the goal. Right. And we want we want a detective that's a bit of a hero. They can have mm-hmm. their flaws, but right. we don't want them to be disgusting. Right. Exactly. So moving on. So what are our favorite mysteries and why do we love them? I feel like you should go first. Okay. <laughs> so you've heard me talk about it before, but the Lord Peter Whimsy series. I love the Lord Peter Whimsy series, especially Gaudy Knight. It is my favorite mystery of all time. I just love the character of Lord Peter Whimsy. I love the character of Harriet Vane. I feel like they are very smart detective stories. I just, I love the world that Dorothy Sayers creates. I could go on and on, but I'm going to do a whole episode on it too. <laughs> Wait. To go on and on then. <laughs> <laughs> Save it for then. I also love, I talked about the Flavia de Luz series. And it's just an 11-year-old. And I think she might be one of my features this month too. But she's this 11-year-old chemistry-obsessed little girl who has this propensity to find dead bodies and help solve the crimes. And she <laughs> she does team up, like loosely teams up with the local police force. So it's interesting. And, and there's this sweet cast of characters that you grow to know that are in her town and she lives in this English estate. It's in the 1950s and her family has, they are of the aristocracy, but they have lost their wealth. So she has the the people in the house, her siblings, her father and a housekeeper and a groundskeeper who has, is a shell-shocked war veteran. 
it's just a very funny, fun series that actually has a lot of hard things that happen and, and some some heart behind it, very much so. But it's the way that he deals with it. Alan Bradley, the author, is just so well done and so delightful. And he just makes this wonderfully precocious, funny character. He is inside the head of an 11-year-old girl. And it's just <laughs> absolutely delightful. So the Flavia the Loose series... I also love 450 from Paddington by Agatha Christie. I don't know why. It's a Miss Marple mystery. And it I think it's called what Mrs. McGillicuddy saw. Yeah. And that's another, uh, maybe the British title. But this woman sees a murder on a train and nobody believes her. And Miss Marple enlists the aid of a friend of hers to infiltrate the country house to see if she can find the dead body. And it's just... Fun, high fun. body, high <laughs> body count mystery. I love that one. It feels a little bit more cozy, more of a cozy mm-hmm. mystery. And I also am really enjoying the Brother Cadfile mysteries. I'm only read one. I'm halfway through it, but it's the Virgin in the Ice, and it is a monk in the 1100s, around the time of the English anarchy between. King Stephen and Empress Maud. And he is kind of in charge of the infirmary or he has a part in the infirmary at the Abbey and he solves murders. So it's very interesting. There's a great quote in it about taking on guilt and what ifs that I wish I could remember it. I will have to find it and include it somewhere, but it was just really well done. So that's kind of my short list. Sophie, what are yours? (laughs) There's so many. Oh, Josephine Tate. I love love the daughter of time. It's a good one. I also love Lord Peter Wimsey and, and Harriet, any of the ones that they're in. And I got to read Guiding Night while I was in Oxford. So I... <laughs> so jealous, <laughs> Sophie. I appreciate it so much more because I read it and I was like, oh, I walked on that street today. Um, so that was fun. That was a good way to read it. Um, I feel like I'm still missing a lot. Like if I actually attended Oxford, I feel like I would understand the book that much better. Uh, maybe yeah, one day. I know. That's like... <laughs> It's past for me, but man, that would be a dream. <laughs> I, I'm never too late. It would be fun. Um, I also love Murder Must Advertise, which is one of the Peter Wimsey oh, yes. ones. I'm, I, don't, I don't like advertising, but I feel for Dorothy Sayers, who worked in advertising, and I do PR, and I love the way that she treats an advertising firm. It's just fantastic. Murder of Roger Ackroyd. I haven't read that one, Sophie. Okay, so that one is just, it's well known because it's very, there's a big twist, like, which I know the twist. It was you know, spoiled for oh, me. Well, that's unfortunate. That makes it less exciting to read. But if you don't know the twist, excellent one to read. It is fascinating. Five Little Pigs. I also really like that one. That's also I have Agatha not read Christie. that one. I think I've read more Agatha Christie probably than most other detective fiction. We usually get hers. Um, so who who is the detective in Five Little Pigs? I think it's Poirot. It's either Poirot or, no, or nobody. Okay. And then The Floating Admiral is one of my favorites. And that is a fun one because the members of the Detection Club, which included Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers, G.K. Testerton, and other people whose names I don't really know, they all wrote it together. And each person had to write a chapter as they like read the previous chapters. And then they all provided their own solutions at the end. There is like one actual solution. I don't remember who it was that wrote it. Then everybody else has their own solutions at the end. And it's just super fun to read. It's not the best one ever because that's really not the ideal thing to have a bunch of people working on. But it's so fascinating to see them all kind of bring it together and 
just what what a fun game that would be. That is so yeah. awesome. I will include a little bit at the end about the Detection Club. There's a book I'm trying to get my hands on to read about it. But it's a fascinating club. It was when does it start? Maybe 1930. There, there's debate about when exactly okay. it started, but I think it was the later right. 1930s. It's these group of famous mystery mm-hmm. writers, and it still exists. And you had to be invited by invitation. And I think some of the criteria was you had to have written two successful mysteries. I think so. Mm-hmm. A.A. Milne was let in, even though he only wrote one. <laughs> so it's an interesting, they had some rituals surrounding it, but they got, essentially, all these writers got together, talked about their their books, talked about murder, and <laughs> kind of bounced ideas off each other in a very fancy club sort of way. And, yep. <laughs> and then wrote a book, a book that, which is pretty awesome. Which I want to read. It's kind of hard to find, but it is findable. <laughs> Maybe they'll get the credit they deserve and we'll see it more mm-hmm. out in the open. Okay, so who are your favorite detectives and favorite mystery writers? My all-time favorite detective is Miss Marple. I do love Miss Marple. Like, this old lady who just solves all these. She's just, she's so funny. She's so great. She's just wonderful. So Miss Marple gives me hope that I could be a detective because <laughs> she's like, she's so absent-minded and just bumbles along and mm-hmm. no one gives her credit for anything. She's just over there solving yeah. doing that knitting. Mm-hmm. She's my favorite. I do love Miss um, Marple. I also like Harriet, just like on her own. I, I do really like, like Harriet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm more of a, I guess I just like female detectives. That's what it seems <laughs> to be. I like the, the guys too, but those are my two favorite detectives. And it's funny because a lot of women write detective fiction. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them choose to do a male, male, detective. male detective. But yes, I agree. I love Harriet Vane, Lord Peter Whimsey, Dorothy Sayers is... My all-time favorite. Maybe <laughs> writer. Of, I don't. Maybe. Like I, I mentioned Flavia Deleuze and Miss Marple. And Poirot because growing up, <laughs> we watched Poirot as a family. Also Sherlock Holmes. I'm not a huge fan of the Sherlock Holmes stories, but we would watch the Jeremy Brett series on Masterpiece Theater when I was young. And that was like a little bit of our family time to try to figure out who the murderer was. So that it has a special place in my heart because of that. And I also am really starting to like Father Brown, and he reminds me a little bit of Miss Marple. They yes. could have teamed up together, Sophie. You know, I for some reason I feel like there is a story with both of them in it. I feel like we should do some fan fiction. <laughs> Father <laughs> Brown and Miss Marple <laughs> <We> team up. <laughs> that would be funny. So all the authors of those of those detectives: Dorothy Sayers, Agatha Christie, Josephine Tay. I didn't include her detective because. I enjoy the book. I wouldn't say he's my favorite detective. He's Inspector Grant, but I, I do enjoy him and Alan Bradley and G.K. Chesterton. And that we didn't talk about this, but who is one of your favorite sidekicks? Watson. Watson. Mm-hmm. I was trying to think. And of Parker. That. Yes, Charles Parker. <laughs> Charles Parker in the Lord Peter Whimsey series. He doesn't feature in as much once Harriet Vane enters the scene. Right. But he's pretty crucial in the first first few. He's a chief inspector right? Mm-hmm. And is it Scotland Yard? Yes. It's, and he is friends with Lord Peter Whimsey, and he actually becomes part of Lord Peter Whimsey's family later. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, when I read the first Lord Peter Whimsey book, Whose Body, I like Charles Barker better than Lord Peter Whimsey. Well, because he is better than him at that he point. Is, he is. And, and she, she develops the character, mm-hmm. and poor Charles Parker kind of fades out. I That's when I, my love of Lord Peter Whimsey took over. <laughs> Okay, wrapping up, Sophie, what mystery would you recommend for people to read if there was only one mystery they could read? This was a very 
Very hard question. It was, and I think I answered my own question wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if this is the right answer. That probably is not a right answer. Mm-mm. But I, I think I'll go with the first Peter Wimsey one I ever read that I read for school, which is The Nine Tailors. Oh, I do love The Nine Tailors. It's just, it's so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Even though it's not my favorite of Peter Wimsey, I feel like if there's just like one that you just really want to encapsulate the, the mm-hmm. fascination of, it'd be that one. And that one's interesting because it's it's after Harriet Vane is introduced into the series. And, and I'll talk more about Harriet Vane, but she is the love interest. And she's only mentioned very briefly, I think, in that one. So she doesn't if play. She's not. Yeah, in. I don't even know <laughs> if she's even mentioned. She's not in it. But once she enters in Strong Poison, which is maybe the fifth book in the series, I'm not sure I could be wrong. But she's in all of them except for, at least mentioned, she's not much, she doesn't have a big role in Murder Must Advertise. Right. But it's like the romance is just not even an important part of The Nine Tailors. And it's it's an, it's still very very compelling. Mm-hmm. I do love that one. I also love and this was really the one that I would choose, with some caveats that it may not be for everyone. But I don't know what's wrong with you. It would not be for you. Is Gaudy Knight? That is my absolute favorite. I've I've said it so many times in this episode, and I, and I will say it more in the episode when I feature Gaudy Knight. But that is my absolute favorite mystery. The only thing is that you have to read a few of the books first. Have some background. You have to have the background. Otherwise, you'd feel lost. And I feel you like would. It, I feel like you need to at least do some research in right. Oxford to know like what terms yes. they're talking about, and maybe Google Images, do the little Google Maps walk through Oxford exactly because it's so important to the story. <laughs> but if you had the background, that would be the, my suggestion because it is just such a good one. But we also love to hear from y'all what favorite mysteries detectives, authors that you have, because I'm sure we missed some of them. And Sophie, any other final thoughts before we go? None at all. My thoughts are all spent. (laughs) Well, thank you, Sophie, so much for being on here. And y'all will hear Sophie's lovely voice again in the near future. Sometime I'll have her back. And if you have the chance, please listen to her podcast, Beneath the Willow Tree, which is fantastic. Thanks again, Sophie. So much fun. If you've enjoyed our talk today and want to go down a rabbit hole of mysteries and detective fiction for yourself, here are some additional reading suggestions. The Moonstone. This Victorian-era novel is interesting because it's credited as being one of the first mysteries. And for a little history of the genre, the book I mentioned earlier, The Golden Age of Murder. It's a history of the Detection Club, a secret club of mystery writers that was started during the Golden Age of Mystery. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you've enjoyed dipping your toes into mysteries along with me and Sophie. Next week, I'll be talking about the first Flavia Deleuze novel, The Sweetness at the Bottom of the Pie. In the meantime, if you enjoy listening to this episode, would you consider leaving a review? It helps spread the word about the podcast. Until next time.